that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Today we talk with Catherine Tumber, author of Small, Gritty, and Green, The Promise of, of America's Small Industrial Cities in a Low-Carbon World. We'll be talking at length with her about a number of different issues uh, related to the role of smaller cities um, in this post-carbon future. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. And Catherine Tumber is uh, uh, the guest uh, on today's program, and uh, she's author, again, of Small, Gritty, and Green, The Promise of America's Smaller Industrial Cities in a Low-Carbon World. And uh, the just to give you a quick sense of uh, the synopsis of the book um, and what she covers, um, it's published by the MIT Press, and um, uh, just going to read you a quick synopsis. America's once vibrant small to mid-sized cities, Syracuse, Worcester, Akron, Flint, Rockford, and others increasingly resemble urban wastelands gutted by deindustrialization, outsourcing, and middle-class flight, disproportionately devastated by metro freeway systems that laid waste to the urban fabric and displaced the working poor and struggling with pockets of poverty reminiscent of post-colonial squalor. Small industrial cities, as a class, have become invisible to a public distracted by the Wall Street big city versus Main Street, the small town matchup. These cities would seem to be part of America's past, not its future, and yet journalist and historian Catherine Tumber, Ar- Catherine Tumber argues in this provocative book America's gritty Rust Belt cities could play a central role in a greener, low-carbon, relocalized future. As we wean ourselves from fossil fuels and realize the environmental costs of suburban sprawl, we will see that small cities offer many assets for sustainable living not shared by their big city or small town counterparts. Population density and the capacity for more, 
fertile nearby farmland available for local agriculture, windmills and solar farms, and manufacturing infrastructure and workforce skill that can be repurposed for the production of renewable energy technology. Tumber, who has spent much of her life in Rust Belt cities, traveled to 25 cities in the Northeast and Midwest, from Buffalo to Peoria to Detroit to Rochester, interviewing planners, city officials, and activists, and weaving their stories into their exploration of small-scale urbanism. Smaller cities can be a critical part of a sustainable future and a productive green economy. Small, gritty, and green will help us develop the moral and political imagination we need to realize this. And again, that's from... Uh, the MIT Press, um, Catherine Tumber's book, Small, Gritty, and Green. Just reading the back cover uh, description, uh, synopsis of that book. And we're going to hear from her over the next uh, two shows, actually. This is going to be part one of our conversation, talking about these processes of deindustrialization and these smaller cities. Um, and Catherine's research um, and work um, is particularly in the U.S. context, but I think for uh, certainly for Canadian listeners, um, this is uh, uh, certainly uh, a case um, not unlike what we have um, in smaller Canadian cities um, of, um, spe- I guess, specifically in, in southern Ontario um, regions of Quebec, um, who uh, have been hit hard by processes of deindustrialization um, as manufacturing has moved um, to cheaper locales where where labor is cheaper and production costs can be minimized. Um, so these we have to see these as explicit processes um, with um, very context specific outcomes. But um, also, um, if we generalize, we see um, many of the same conditions um, prevalent in a number of uh, both Canadian and uh, American uh, mid-sized industrial uh, cities. So with that, um, I just wanted to give you a a sense of uh, Catherine Tumber's background. And she's currently visiting scholar at the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University. She's a journalist as well as a historian. And in the past, uh, she's been a research affiliate at the uh, MIT Department of Urban Studies and Planning and Community Innovators Lab. Uh, She's also been the managing editor, art director at the Boston Review, and managing editor, news and features at the Boston Phoenix. And um, again, uh, we're going to be hearing from her shortly. um, And we're also going to be hearing uh, this conversation in two parts. So um, sit back and uh, enjoy the following um, interview, uh, Catherine Tumber, and this is part one. Catherine Tumber, you are author of Small, Gritty, and Green, The Promise of America's Smaller Industrial Cities in a Low-Carbon World. Can you first tell me the inspiration uh, for this book? Um, well, it, it was uh, uh, partly inspiration and, and um, autobiographical, I suppose, and based on my own experience, and partly um, um, arose from a set of intellectual preoccupations. Personally, um, I grew up in one of these cities. I'm concerned with um, small to mid-size industrial cities of the Northeast and Midwest in the United States. And um, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, and I spent many years um, in graduate school and also working in uh, Rochester, New York. I lived in Albany and um, New York, and I spent um, quite a few years in Detroit, these sort of Rust Belt City. Um, so I'm very, so I'm really, even though I live in Boston now, I'm really, a, you know, a child of the of the 
I spent most of my life in the Rust Belt. And over the course of my lifetime, I saw these cities um, really fall apart due to deindustrialization and disinvestment in um, these smaller cities. Um, so, um, you know, it's it's been bothering me for many years. <laughs> when you, um, yeah. I've been aggrieved. Um, but also, um, as over the course of my life, I've watched um, a conversation arise about urbanism and the nature of urbanism in cities and a sort of valuing of cities over the past, you know, 30 years. And um, as that conversation unfolded um, and uh, eventually to the benefit of large cities, um, meaning that they, they became... Um, valued again. Um, smaller cities just kind of dropped out of the urban conversation. And, um, you know, so when people talked about, you know, human settlements, they tended to talk, I mean, not people in general, but, you know, um, our urban tastemakers, influential urbanists, uh, they tend to talk about small towns or very big cities. And um, these... Uh, small to mid-sized cities became more or less invisible. So um, that gets into my uh, sort of intellectual preoccupation over the course of, you know, my, my adulthood, which is a sense of um, proportion and scale and um, a sense of limits to growth. I came of age in the 70s and was very much influenced by the environmentalist movement at that time. And um, it struck me that as we were talking more and more about cities over the past, you know, say, 10 years, 15 years, um, we really, you know, the more, more and more people such as Ed, Ed Glazer and um, Richard Florida were really putting a great premium on large and growing cities. Um, at the expense of, you know, smaller cities. So it seemed to me that this was, um, you know, yet another example of the many ways that we overvalue growth for its own sake and add, um, you know, um, how can I put this? Um, have lost a sense of, of scale proportion. I want to come back. That's where it came yeah. from. Okay. <laughs> so this for you certainly, uh, certainly comes uh, from a, a personal, uh, realm in addition to a, an intellectual interest as well. Yes. Yeah. I, I want to come back to suppose, a number. I suppose yeah. the personal informed the, the, the intellectual preoccupation. Absolutely. I want to come back to a number of the themes that you brought up, um, but I want to first um, give people a sense of when we talk about the Rust Belt and when we talk about smaller industrial cities in the U.S. Um, and to a lesser extent, uh, Canadian cities. Um, we have Ontario and we have the, the Windsor-to-Quebec City Corridor, uh -huh. um, but we don't necessarily have... Uh, the same magnitude, the number of cities, um, industri smaller industrial cities that the U.S. has. Um, but give people a sense of the history and the historical 
economic geography of um, of smaller industrial cities in that landscape? Well, it's it's uh, it's it's quite complicated, actually. Um, um, you know, uh, uh, industrialization really emerged in the Northeast um, with the uh, the, um, the mill towns of the of the Northeast and in the in, the, um, in New England. And then, as the economy and the population, or I should say that the Euro-American economy and population moved west, um, the changes in the nature of the manufacturing economy moved with it. And then, with the opening of the, you know, with the opening of the canals in um, New York State and Ohio, particularly, and then with the development of the railroads, so you have these. Um, these cities, particularly in um, you know the Midwest, um, that um, rose very quickly with the full-on development of modern manufacturing, and um, they were really you know quite a new urban form in the history of the world um, that had you know only a recent antecedent in uh, the industrial cities of, of England, Britain. So um, these cities um, were suddenly on the landscape, and they emerged, um, you know, from uh, small settlements in the 1880s and 90s, and um, grew into into cities by the 1920s. And um, and so much of what um, fueled their growth and their the later years of their appearance were um, was the car industry, the auto industry in the Midwest, and the steel industry. And um, what happened is that after World War II, the auto industry started to deconcentrate from Detroit. And so you had this very strange combination of things that happened in these cities. Some of them actually grew with the deconcentration of the auto industry. When I say deconcentrate, I mean that the auto industry started moving out of Detroit um, and into suburban Detroit and into these smaller cities. So some of them um, uh, grew during these years, but many of them also lost population during these, these years. And by the 70s, with the decline of the U.S. Uh, auto industry in general, um, they all started losing population, almost every single one. And so you have um, cities like Detroit and like um, Flint and Youngstown, Ohio, Flint, Michigan, um, that have lost today um, half their populations. Um, and so they're facing um, a kind of urban crisis that's on a scale that, you know, people in larger, more successful cities like New York, Vancouver, <laughs> um, uh, Chicago, have not had to face. They they have um, a combination of, of um, you know, vacant properties um, on a scale that, you know, is unimaginable. Um, unless you've actually been to visit these places. And they also have this very strange phenomenon of what's been called by the Brookings Institution 
sprawl without growth. So you have um, these um, depopulated cities, but you also have massive sprawl um, that is disproportionate to the to the urban core, the size of the urban core. So they're facing really quite remarkable um, 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 metropolitan problems. Um, but they also have many opportunities. And I argue in my book that if we ever really kind of like get traction on developing a low-carbon economy, that manufacturing could return to these places because the, the, the supply chains and the skill level is still to some extent intact and it can be repurposed for the development of um, you know, the manufacture of the sort of um, um, renewable energy harvesting equipment that we will need in the future. Okay. Can we go back for a moment and can you talk more about the role of deindustrialization and um, uh, GATT, which uh, and later NAFTA, um, North American Free Trade Agreement, mm. and uh, the loss um, or the the southern movement of manufacturing. A lot of this had to do with um, evading uh, the, the the evasion of of union towns, union cities, union environments <coughs> to move south. Can you talk more about that process of deindustrialization um, and, oh, sure. and, yeah. and free trade? Um, I, I kind of leapt over that. There's there's so much to cover <laughs> <laughs> um, in this subject. Um, what happened in the in the mill towns of New England? Um, was uh, was replicated um, with the in the auto and steel industries after the the, the Second World War, um, beginning in the the nineteen teens, I believe. Um, the um, the textile manufacturers moved out of New England wholesale into the South, where they could pay uh, much lower wages. Um, because they, the, uh, they were right to work. Well, actually, that's a early, too early term. Um, because they could pay lower wages. And um, what happened after the Second World War is that um, when um, um, the automobile industry began to deconcentrate and move out of Detroit, it went to, uh, it started moving south, um, to the upper south and to states in, in the Midwest that had um, no union activity or very little union activity. I mean, they, they were going in part to get away from union militancy. And um, there were other reasons, too, but that was one of the reasons. And, um, and then um, by the 1980s, I believe, um, they started outsourcing to, um, to to Mexico, and then with greater intensity to the to, to Asia. Um, the um, and much of this, um, you know, went into full gear with um, the free trade agreements of the early '90s. So, um, you know, and now. Um, 
as manufacturing is beginning to reshore to some extent, um, manufacturing firms and their supply chains are expecting uh, workers to work at non-union wages, and they're only willing to come back and work in non-union shops. So this is a major, um, you know, uh, battle that's going to be fought over the next, you know, ten or twenty years, ten years, as 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 this uh, reshoring happens, if it happens, um, it's, it's going to be a major fault line. <laughs> of course, people are so desperate for jobs um, in the Midwest that. Um, you know, they're willing to make a lot of concessions. When the Obama administration um, restructured um, the auto industry, um, the unions were willing to make, you know, dramatic concessions in order to, um, to, save, uh, to save the industry. And it remains to be seen how that's going to play out. Just... This uh, this past Sunday, August fifth, in the New York Times, they're running a, a frequent, um, uh, somewhat frequent, uh, ongoing series on the I economy, and uh, just was an interesting feature on um, on bringing Japanese automakers into the U.S. Um, the article is titled "In, yes, in Wooing of Nissan: A Lesson for Tech Jobs." Deal in mm-hmm. 1980s created thousands of manufacturing openings in America. And I just wanted to bring this up because I think it is interesting and timely um, because the talk of protectionist measures to bring jobs or keep jobs in the U.S. um, or for companies that are selling products here, the requirement that they must be made here to some extent um, Mm -hmm. is something that is uh, a constant debate among uh, in policy circles. But certainly this has an impact and a bit of a... Um, uh, uh, sidetrack from uh, the discussion we were having, but uh, I, th- I certainly think it's quite relevant. So, oh, I do too, and I don't think it's a, it sidetracks it's a sidetrack at all from what we were talking about. This is exactly the kind of thing that that is going to um, we're going to see play out if if manufacturing is going to become a significant sector of the economy again. And by that, I don't I don't mean to suggest that manufacturing has been completely gone. But it has been it has become so automated, um, um, and the production jobs, um, the shop floor jobs, have um, so so many of them have gone overseas. That um, you know, if manufacturing returns, it's going in any significant way. It's going to be um, on very different terms. the The work process is going to look different. The nature of the skill level, the, the, the nature of the skills required are going to be more um, technical, I mean, high-tech. Um, you know, some call it advanced manufacturing. Um, but the, but the uh, yeah, the, uh, um, finding some way, you know, there are, we need, <laughs> if it's going to succeed, we need to develop the, the political will to, to make it succeed and to make manufacturing a larger sector of the economy than it has been. Um, and perhaps, I would argue, um, making the, uh, um, um, the, fi- the financial sector of the economy less important. Mm-hmm. 
Will will manufacturing return to North America um, as a result of um, uh, oil becoming increasingly expensive as we are nearing? Uh, we've you know by by most uh, accounts uh, we reached peak oil in two thousand six globally. The U.S. oil um, uh, reserves peaked in the seventies. Will we see that natural relocalization of manufacturing as a result of um, growing energy costs? Uh, you know, I, th- there's much, much, much debate about this. Um, I, I think that um, it. it, it uh, I think that. Global warming will have an effect on global trade and all, and and global food supply and the way that we organize agriculture in all kinds of ways, and we can sort of foresee some of them, and others we can't foresee. Um, one of the things that um, um, I, I think is going to be important is the uh, you know the effect of disruptive weather patterns on global trade, um, and. You know, I I, uh, I think that one thing that has really um, thrown off um, balance, uh, people who were, were pushing for um, developing the renewable energy industry, is that the uh, the, the um, uh, uh, natural gas industry is uh, is really taking off here. Um, Involving, you know, fracking. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very controversial, as I'm sure you know. Very controversial but, here uh, as well. Mining, uh, you know, uh, natural gas with shale through shale, yeah. and um, it's bringing down the, the 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 price of energy. So it's making it even harder for it's it's now difficult for even oil to compete com, uh, compete with natural gas. But it's making it much harder for, um, you know, re- renewable energy development to compete in the energy markets. Um, and they are already behind the eight ball because they're because it's still a relatively, um, you know, immature industry. There's still a lot of um, re- uh, research and development work and technological um, research to do to make it really happen and to make it affordable. So um, that's a you know that's a that's a real problem. I mean, it, I I think that peak oil is a real thing, but I also I also think that um, the U.S. has has really uh, because of its ramped up production of natural gas, it's changing the the energy landscape here in a way that's going to um, postpone a reckoning. Mm. <laughs> With with our need, our need on on energy grounds alone to develop renewable energy, there are other you know arguments for it. Um, you know there are, there are dangers to um, the, the hydrofracking process um, that um, that could put an end to that industry. Um, that's all very much up for debate. Can we return to? Um Looking at the history of smaller um, industrial American cities, sure. can we return to the planning, the history, um, the planning history of these cities, um, and specifically looking at the role of um, 
highway building and uh, road infrastructure played in um, you talk a lot about this in your book about how in many ways um, it it was um, quite unfortunate that um, these massive highway building modernist projects um, destroyed many of the downtowns um, and vibrant retail and commercial districts of these smaller uh, cities. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, in the United States, um, the, um, the United, uh, uh, we embarked on a massive highway building um, project. Um, still, to, to this day, the, the biggest public works project in our history, the development of the highway system. And um, in New York in particular, um, Robert Moses, who is a, who's been referred to as the master builder, um, ran a number of quasi-independent authorities that basically um, controlled the use of that that federal funding and used it to build highways through um, the middle of Manhattan. <laughs> and this is partly wh- what um, aroused um, Jane Jacobs's um, um, defense of the city. And she led a, a, a citizen activist movement to um, prevent the building of one of those highways right through um, Soho in Lower Manhattan, um, among other things. I mean, she's accomplished so much. We can talk more about her later. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, what happened is that these, built, these, these inner city highways were built everywhere. But the problem is, is that in New York City, or a city of, of larger scale, well, they were ter- they, they they tore apart neighborhoods, they threw people out of their homes without providing um, alternative housing, and they were usually almost to a, a neighborhood um, black and Hispanic. Um, so there's a great injustice in that. Um, it, these these highway building projects destroyed these neighborhoods, and and broke apart the larger urban fabric, but in cities at smaller scale where this happened, it was absolutely devastating for, for, the, for the urban core because they just weren't large enough to handle that sort of, you know, um, uh, destruction, that scale of destruction. And also they, they had um, um, smaller markets, you know, in, in a city like like New York, they they could um, you know while much much retail went out to the suburbs along with um, you know the residential suburban development, they still had enough population to be able to to keep um, retail in business, and that wasn't the case in in these smaller cities. It just devastated downtown retail. Their markets couldn't handle the um, the, the competition. So, um, yeah, um, one of the things that I, I I think that these cities should really consider, even though it might sound um, too ambitious, is trying to dismantle and reroute some of these um, these downtown highways. And there's been some some effort to do that in in a few places, but it's a very long process and very expensive. The thing is, though, that these these monstrosities were built in the in the late fifties and into the into the sixties, 
and they're reaching the end of their lifetimes. They need um, substantial repair, which is very expensive, um, or they need to be replaced. And so this is a good time in terms of the life cycle of the, of the, of the structures to be having this conversation. How does transportation play a role in transforming the, the landscapes um, economically and socially of these smaller industrial cities into the, the, the vision that, that you write about in your book? These cities were, um, you know, um, really um, very dramatically affected by the rise of the automobile. Um, in the, uh, you know, 30s and 40s, um, the, the, um, the, the urban trolley systems and the interurban rail systems that connected cities and towns to each other um, was systematically dismantled. And, you know, there were some larger cities that held on to their, to their uh, public transportation systems, Boston. I mean, their rail systems, Boston, New York, Chicago. Um, but these smaller cities um, really gave themselves over completely to the automobile. And so one of the, the legacies that they, that they have um, to, to deal with now is that they're, they're much, they tend to be much more culturally devoted to the automobile because they've had to be. Um, and they don't have um, the kind of... Uh, the, 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 uh, the, as much population to support um, both cars and public transit. And then there's the additional problem of, you know, what I referred to before as um, sprawl without growth. They really need their cars to get, to get around, um, but to get in and out of the city is really quite, you know, a disproportionate distance um, in a place like, say, Buffalo, New York. Um, because it's sprawled so far. So you've got this, you know, paradox. You've got people who really need their cars because there's really no, no alternative. Um, and, 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 um, and yet they need, they, they really, for them to thrive in the future and to grow, you know, inward in the future, they need to develop um, better systems of mass transit. Many of them are more suited to um, bus systems, you know, high-end bus systems, and and quite a, quite a few cities are are pursuing that now. Although, you know, with the fiscal crisis they're they're facing, um, it's not clear how much how much they'll be able to get done. Let's talk about the role um, that Lewis Mumford and. Um um, later, Jane Jacobs, you you talk quite a bit and work their ideas into your book. Mm-hmm. Um, can you first talk a little bit about, uh, for those unfamiliar with Lewis Mumford, um, who he is and um, discuss this and then later discuss uh, the idea of ecological uh, regionalism and, and the role that um, this idea uh, plays in your in your book? Okay. I'm happy to talk about Lewis Mumford. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lewis Mumford is um, 
or was uh, um, what we now call a public intellectual. Um, he was um, someone who um, was was well versed um, um, and and deeply read in a number of different fields. And he wrote primarily for a for a um, you know general educated readership. Um, he didn't have he was not an academic. There was a time, <laughs> you know, until say the the sixties. Um, when there really was an independent um, intellectual culture where you could do that, there were enough places to publish um, and and um, make a living. In any case, uh, Mumford uh, lived from, I think he was born around 1900, and he died in the, I want to say, early 90s. Um, he was very interested in understanding the, 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 the nature of American culture, um, and one of the ways that he he one of his ways into that was was through his studies of architecture and eventually urban planning. Um, he was also um, interested in the role of technology in culture. So he um, was involved with. Um, Early in the, in the 1920s, he became involved and was a, a major, you know, uh, you know, founder of this group called the Amer- um, Regional Planning Association, and they were concerned with the way in which large cities, and, and really he talked mainly about New York City at this point in his life. I mean, he was from New York, were becoming um, too big, too congested too um, um, polluted, and he uh, and the other members of this group were, were interested in developing other ways of thinking about urbanism and urban development and different types of models for that. And he um, was inter- part of what troubled him about, about New York is that it was, had become so unhealthful. And so he he became interested in um, the relationship between the city and the countryside, and he developed a um, or they developed a way of understanding um, the relationship between the city and the countryside that um, recognized that there was there 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 must be limits to to the growth of cities. And that there has to, had to be a more organic relationship between um, um, the environment and human settlements, and so he he looked um, he developed a model that called for rather than the the um, growth and agglomeration of the, these huge metropolitan areas. He called for more of what he what he described as a web of cities in the ecological region, and um, the idea was that there would be um, you know permanent green belts around large cities, you know, and small to mid-sized cities, not towns, but cities. And he named them. He he referred to Dayton. He referred to Pittsburgh. Um, and that 
people in the city would have access to, um, you know, food supply and um, recreational amenities, as they would call them today. They'd have a relationship with nature, but they would still have the culture of the city. Um, and then he also, um, the, you know, he, he, he ended up later in his life getting involved with um, a few efforts to try to build some of these places, and they ended up becoming suburbs. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he's been, um, you know, criticized for being anti-urban, and basically developing um, a rationalization for the suburbs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you really read his work carefully, you can see very clearly that he's really talking about um, this, the, you know, these places as cities and as a web of cities in the broader ecological region. Can you bring in Jane Jacobs and um, people may be more familiar with uh, Jane Jacobs, um, but bring her into into the picture and talk about where both of these um, intellectuals um, and urbanists fit into um, the the arguments that you make in your book. Sure. Um, um, Jane Jacobs was one of the people who, who charged Lewis Mumford for, with providing a defense of um, the suburban model, which I should, you know, remind everyone was relatively new. Jane Jacobs wrote her um, her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, um, in 1961, a time when the suburbs had, you know, were were um, had had really gone through a huge boom period in the United States, post-war boom. Um, her argument was that um, people like Mumford. Um, who had talked very openly and clearly about the importance of planning, planning for development, not letting these places just sort of sprawl willy-nilly, driven by economic interests and by developers. She argued that, um, that places like New York worked well in terms of their security, in terms of the sense of community, because planners were um, planners weren't as involved because you know people on the street just kind of took care of themselves and um, she saw the um, from her perspective planning was embodied by people like Robert Moses who were driving freeways through the, through the city and disrupting neighborhoods and bringing a, a, a suburban sensibility into the city. So she was very anti-planning. Um, that's an understatement. <laughs> he was... Um, she was also... She, much of her work was critical of, of, of certain kinds of planning traditions that were popular at that time, and one of them was the idea of building tall buildings, um, and creating density um, through through building you know tall tall skyscrapers, and particularly in the kinds of projects, urban renewal projects that were being built at that point to um, quote warehouse the poor unquote. Um, and she thought that these places were just um, you know 
wrong on every single level. They were, they were um, ugly. They tried to, to introduce nature into um, the living um, environment of, of um, these urban renewal projects by, by um, you know, just planting a, plopping down a park. She called these places towers in a park. Um, and as if that was sufficient, um, you know, um, nature or a, 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 an appropriate gathering place for people living in, you know, 25-story skyscrapers. And she saw them as dangerous and, um, you know, more of a suburban sensibility that didn't belong in the city. Well, it's interesting, Catherine, where, um, as you probably know, Vancouver has been known for the, the tower and podium uh, style of development in our downtown. Yeah. And that is a, a, a hot debate, um, not, not just now, but um, for some time now, but really of late, um, really a lot of neighborhoods are upset because they're being plunked down in, in low-rise neighborhoods who feel that this thing has no, no right to be uh, dropped down some... I have have uh, used the analogy that's like a spaceship coming from outer space and it drops right down in a neighborhood and it's, <laughs> you know, 22 stories or 19 stories and they are not, not pleased with it. So uh, certainly that resonates, I think, with, with listeners um, in a place like Vancouver. Yes. Um, I understand that the term eco-density has been used. It has. Yeah. To this um, sort of approach to urban planning in Vancouver. Vancouver. Um, you know, what's interesting to me about this, this, is, this, this idea comes out of um, the work of uh, uh, Edward Glazer, mm-hmm. who wrote the book The Triumph of the City, and uh, uh, David Owen, who's actually a New Yorker writer. Um, he wrote a um, very influential book called Green Metropolis, which he argues, you know, Forget about creating green buildings. Forget about doing all this, you know, stuff, recycling. The main thing, the way to keep your carbon footprint to a minimum is to live densely. And um, so, you know, the, the, um, what's happening in Vancouver is, is um, you know, an example of that sort of approach. What's interesting to me, and what little I know about this debate that, as it's playing out in Vancouver, is that no one's really um, talking about Lewis Mumford's vision of the smaller city in the ecological re- region. Mm-hmm. And one of his concerns was that um, um, you know, he, he, one of his concerns was, what do you do with the growing population? You know, and this is one of the things that's preoccupying. Uh, people of Vancouver right now, as I understand, and you have these skyrocketing real estate prices that are attracting developers who want to build even higher. Mm-hmm. But it's also, you know, and and their their rationale for this is that it, it will um, create more housing, so that the the <laughs> the, the, um, the price of of home ownership comes down. The supply side argument. Oh yes, very familiar with. This. Yes, I'm sure you are. <laughs> but um, Lewis Mumford would have argued, why not find ways of moving the excess population to another smaller city? Mm-hmm. Why does everybody have to be in one great big city, mm-hmm. <laughs> one big and growing and you know inevitably sprawling city? 
it will sprawl either up or it will sprawl out, but it will have to sprawl. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that, that you know, it, it's, it's, it's um, an indication of just how much we have lost sight of his, his ideas, that, that no one seems to be talking about that model. It's just kind of assumed that everybody will want to be in the same place. And there are, you know, um, practical reasons for that. I mean, if, if all the jobs are in one place, people have to be there. But there could be ways of, of um, you know, providing incentives for a sort of more decentralized way of developing smaller cities that are, you know, not uh, candidates for suburbanization, but are, that are a significant difference with green belts that divide these, these places. One of the things that just isn't, you know, very re- doesn't very regularly enter into these conversations, in spite of all the local food movement activism we've seen in recent years, is um, is what's going to become of agriculture mm-hmm. with um, global warming. And that's Catherine Tumber, uh, author of Small, Gritty, and Green: The Promise of America's Smaller Industrial Cities in a Low Carbon World. Uh, published uh, in November 2011 by the MIT Press and available um, at bookstores and also at the library um, as well. So check it out. Um, But this conversation continues, and um, we're out of time uh, this week on the city, um, but we'll be returning to this uh, question of really what is the role of smaller um, industrialized cities um, and, and really looking at the processes um, and what we need to do to actually get ourselves into a place where these cities um, can be um, both providing the, the cultural amenities and, and recreational amenities and um, the fabric that uh, we tend to attribute to larger cities um, and in many ways the reasons that so many people tend to be attracted to larger cities. Um, but look at look at the role of smaller cities and see that there is a significant um, role that they can play as we look to to peak oil, to climate change, to so many factors. We need to look at relocalization. We need to look at agriculture and how we relocalize all of this to make um, a more just and sustainable future. So part two of that conversation uh, next week. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, that's CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast uh, at thecityfm.org, and you can find the uh, full archives of every podcast um, from the city there, as well as additional web content, articles, um, and other uh, web-only content. So check it out. That's thecityfm.org. Be sure to follow us on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore fm, and you can search uh, for the program on Facebook uh, by searching The City Critical Urban Discussions. And that does it for this week, and uh, we'll be back next week um, talking more with Catherine Tumber. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, with many more critical urban discussions.